Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Løkkeberg. Michael Sandel, som er en af USA's mest kendte, nulevende politiske filosofer og professor ved Harvard University, udgav for 25 år siden bogen Democracy's Discontent. Bogen var en kritik af både demokraterne og republikanerne, af de venstreorienterede og de højreorienterede i USA, fordi de satte økonomi over politik. Grundlæggende, sagde Sandel, var USA funderet på tanken om, at økonomien altid skulle tjene amerikanernes selvbestemmelse. Økonomi var et middel til at opnå frihed, demokrati og sikre, at man kunne blive myndig i sit eget tilværelse. Det var fundamentet for det amerikanske demokrati, som Thomas Jefferson hyldede, men det var altid i konflikt med en anden opfattelse af demokrati. Nemlig opfattelsen af, at demokrati er noget, der findes ude i samfundet og i det politiske rum, men ikke på arbejdspladsen. Og at økonomien den skulle være så effektiv som muligt. Man skulle bygge store enheder, man skulle bygge produktive enheder. Og hvis økonomien blev så effektiv som muligt, så ville det skabe en velstand, som var forudsætning for demokratiet på den anden side. Der er de to positioner i den amerikanske politiske historie. Dem, der siger, at økonomien skal være demokratisk, skal være et middel, til at kultivere dyder hos borgerne, der gør dem til bedre demokrater. Og den anden, som siger, nej, demokratiets fundament er, at økonomien er effektiv og skaber velstand og skaber materiel sikkerhed. Så derfor så demokratiet er noget, vi forlader, når vi går ind på arbejdspladsen og genindtræder i igen, når vi går ud af arbejdspladsen. Michael Sandels pointe i Democracy's Discontent fra 1997 var, at den ene tænkning havde vundet fuldstændigt. Den havde vundet hos demokraterne, og den havde vundet hos republikanerne. Man var enige om, at man skulle have frihandelsaftaler, som dækkede over hele verden. Og man var enige om, at det galt om at sænke selskabsskatter, sænke skatterne på de produktive. Og uanset om det var en demokrat eller en republikaner, der var præsident, så var det sådan, det var gået i 25 år, skrev Michael Sandel, altså 1997. Michael Sandels pointe dengang var, at man allerede kunne se, at folk var blevet fremmed i deres eget land, og man risikerede en populistisk bevægelse, der sagde, vi vil have vores land tilbage, vi vil have vores kultur tilbage, vi har mistet vores land til fremmed kapital, arbejder fra andre lande og udflytning af arbejdspladser. Det var den ene ting, han så. Den anden ting, han så, var, at folk var blevet umyndiggjorte i deres eget samfund. De havde en fornemmelse af, at de var udsat for kræfter, som de ikke kunne påvirke. Store multinationale selskaber, enorme amerikanske giganter, som satte dagsordenen og bestemte, hvordan vilkårene skulle være på arbejdsmarkedet, og som de ikke kunne protestere imod. Michael Sandels pointe i 97, det var, at økonomiens triumf over politikken havde skabt enorme fremskridt for forbrugerne, men enorme tilbageskridt for borgerne, og at det risikerede at føre til nogle meget, meget vrede protester, som kunne rive det amerikanske politiske system fra hinanden. Nogen vil sige, at det, som Michael Sandel så dengang, var det, der kom til at ske næsten 20 år efter, da Donald Trump blev præsident. Man kan i hvert fald sige, at de dæmoner, som Michael Sandel fik øje på, dem har vi alle sammen set stå helt op foran på scenen i vores samfund nu, 25 år efter han udgav bogen. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. I am Rune, the editor of Information. And especially, I think it's almost good morning or hello to you, Michael Sandel, who's with us from somewhere in Massachusetts, I think. Yes, hello Rune, it's great to be with you again. Well, it's great to be with you and thank you so much for taking your time. 
Michael Sandel har nu skrevet en ny udgave af sit hovedværk, som hedder A New Edition to Our Perilous Times, som er en gentænkning af bogen til disse farlige tider. Og grunden til, at vi taler med Michael Sandel igen, hvis bøger vi jo har udgivet her på Informationsforlag, og som vi tidligere har haft i langsomme samtaler, er netop, at han nu har udgivet opdateringen af sit hovedværk, som vi sammen med ham forbinder til disse vores farlige tider. Vi er her til at celebrate the re-edition af your old classic, that I have an old version of uh, here, Democracy's Discontent. And I remember reading it about 20 years ago and learned a lot from it. So now when the new version came out, i came to think of a review that I read in the Financial Times of the new book by Brad Easton Ellis. And it said in the review that Brad Easton Ellis' books were from a time that then seemed so dangerous, but now seems innocent. And I, I had the same feeling with you, but when I read Democracy's Discontent back in the late 90s, I thought, well, we're in trouble. We need to rethink democracy, but we're in a good place, basically. And now I think uh, 25 years later, my own impression is that it's totally different than now we're in deep trouble. You must have rethought the time then and, and, and the time we're in now rewriting this book. How did you compare the two eras? Well, you're certainly right, Runa, that in the 1990s, there was a sense of, of confidence, even triumphalism. The Cold War had ended. Liberal democratic capitalism seemed the only system left standing. And it was, I think, a, a moment of a certain kind of hubris. You know, peace and prosperity were just around the corner. Neoliberal globalization was in full uh, swing and confidence. And it was only a matter of time before the other countries of the world would find their way to the this model the american or neoliberal style model but at the time as you mentioned in the 1990s i think it was possible to glimpse just beneath the surface rising dissatisfaction with democracy and the way it was working and at the time i thought that dissatisfaction took two forms a sense that the moral fabric of community from family to neighborhood to country the moral fabric of community seemed to be unraveling people felt dislocated and the project of self-government seemed slipping from our reach citizens came to feel that they had less and less control over the forces that govern their lives Now, these were incohate, not fully articulated worries, anxieties, discontents. When I wrote the first edition of the book in the 1990s, I would say in the 25 years since, these incohate anxieties have come bursting through the surface and become much more acute. So that right at the center of our politics, is a sense that democracy is in peril, that community is unraveled, that we're driven apart, that we are disempowered as democratic citizens. So those rumblings, those intimations that I wrote about in the 1990s, sadly came to a kind of full expression in the last, I would say, the last six or so years. And I think to your credit, I think you could say that Some of the signs, you saw them very early. Uh, you write later in the book that 
Today we have technocratic government on the one hand, and then we have public anger on the other hand, both yeah. displaying a kind of lack of, of original self-governance. And you saw that at the time. Of course, now, it also seems that we're at the end of an era, the neoliberal era, the era of, of globalization. And a lot of people that I talk to uh, here in Europe and in Denmark, they're kind of nostalgic about this era and say, well, we had free trade. We believed that we would all become richer, just just trading with each other. And we would believe we were in a post-war period. And they feel nostalgic. I don't feel nostalgic about this era of neoliberalism. I think of it as the time when we blew the climate fight, that now it's just a matter of limiting the damage, basically. It was a time when we lost control of our democracies. And, and it was a time when inequality exploded and people knew about it and let it happen. So I'm not nostalgic, but a lot, a lot of people here are. How do you see this neoliberal era looking back? Much the way you do, Runa. I think you are right not to be nostalgic for it. Um, I think you're right that we lost the climate fight. We did nothing to stem the widening inequalities that have only deepened since. And we, we didn't really appreciate the depth of the frustrations and the grievances that were accumulating, especially among those who already in the 1990s, but especially in the years since, came to see themselves as the losers of globalization. One of the great hubristic uh, misunderstandings uh, of the governing elites in the 1990s was that commerce, global trade, free trade agreements, the deregulation of finance, free capital flows across borders, that these economic and financial aspects of globalization would knit us all together, would bring countries of the world together, would lead their political systems and their values to converge, would make war obsolete. And this is an old hope, uh, goes back at least to the 18th century, that global commerce would banish war, would be a, a source of world peace, uh, that we would gradually erode the sharp distinctions uh, between uh, countries and cultures and people. And I mean, looking back now with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine to uh, mention just the most uh, brutal, obvious example, this didn't happen. And, uh, but I think it also at a more visceral level, it was a misunderstanding of what it takes to locate people in the world. Um, at the time, and I can't resist uh, mentioning this, Runa, uh, in the earlier edition, I wrote that to the extent that contemporary politics puts sovereign states and sovereign selves in question, it is likely to provoke reactions from those who would banish ambiguity, shore up borders, pardon the distinction between insiders and outsiders, and promise of politics to take back our culture and take back our country to restore our sovereignty with a vengeance. That's what I worried about in the mid-1990s and from 2016 onward. We've seen, well, we've seen this 
happened. So I think it was a kind of moment of heady self-confidence that was misplaced. And I agree with you. We should not be nostalgic for it or aspire to return to those arrangements. But then if we look at, at where America is today, it's just, of course, a very conflicted moment. And you have a lot, you have a lot of different tendencies going on at at the same time. It appears to me that you could see the 2016 election as absolutely crucial because you had Bernie Sanders from the left challenging this whole free trade agreement system. And right. you had Donald Trump from the right doing the same thing. And now it seems that even though every every Democrat was opposed to everything Donald Trump did and said, some of the things that he started, they are continuing them. And some of the inspiration from Bernie Sanders that Hillary Clinton thought was an absolutely ridiculous figure back then are now almost mainstream democratic policies. Do you agree that that this era in a policy-wise matter is also coming to an end? I think this era is finally coming to an end. Now, I thought uh, at an earlier moment that this era would be coming to an end, that this way of thinking about global politics would be in for a reckoning. And that was uh, at the time of the global financial crisis of 2008. At the time, I think many of us thought, now finally will come a public debate about what should be the reach and role of markets in democratic societies. Uh, what should be the role and power of finance? Were we mistaken to deregulate the financial industry? Um, but that debate didn't happen after 2008. To the contrary, both of the mainstream parties in the United States responded to the meltdown of the financial industry not by fundamentally restructuring it and making finance amenable to democratic control, but instead by reviving the system. That was the solution. That was the bailout. And this was politically very consequential for what followed, because this generated the bailout, which essentially uh, helped the banks, but did little for ordinary citizens who had lost their homes or who were who lost their jobs. It generated tremendous resentment and anger that found expression, just as you've said, Runa, on both sides of the political spectrum. On the left, it fueled the Occupy Wall Street movement and the candidacy of Bernie Sanders when he took on Hillary Clinton. On the right, it fueled the Tea Party movement and ultimately the candidacy of Donald Trump. What's striking is that the left expression um, did not triumph, at least not in the election of 2016. The Trumpian version did. But now that Joe Biden defeated Trump and assumed the presidency, even though he is an established Washington figure of very long standing, Joe Biden, by no means a radical. He absorbed, I think, through political instinct and experience more than any broad ideological vision, he absorbed the critique that had developed through Bernie Sanders' campaign, and to some extent also, as you were pointing out, through Trump in their shared critique of unfettered free trade and global capital 
flows uh, in their attention to the plight of working people who had been left behind. And so I think that the neoliberal version of finance-driven capitalism that created the vast inequality and also inequalities of social esteem, because it's not only about income and wealth, it's about political power and opportunity and social esteem. I think that there is an awareness of the need to reckon with this and to address structural inequalities rather than simply to say, if you want to compete and win in the global economy, go get a college degree. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. These were the mantras of Democrats as well as Republicans during the 90s and 2000s. And they missed the mood of discontent, which I think is why Trump was able to seize upon it. So now I think Democrats too, progressives, are beginning to reckon with the defects of the, uh, the market-driven way of thinking about the economy and about politics and democracy that led us to this predicament. One of the great points in your book, and I never thought of it before I read it the first time, actually, is that at a time, economy was not seen in itself, but <laughs> as a mean to, to cultivate public virtues. Of course, I know how they made the economy in the Soviet Union to make a certain kind of citizen. And I know from here from the Danish welfare state that we kind of made an economy that we thought would inspire democratic citizens. But I never thought of it in the broad frame that you put up here, that people like Thomas Jefferson, for them, the most important thing about the economic arrangement was to cultivate certain virtues that would enable people to be self-governing. Now, if you look back at this neoliberal era and say, well, economic arrangements, they cultivate public virtues. What are the virtues that were cultivated during these last 30 years? Well, during the last 30 years, there has not been much effective cultivation of virtue, especially from the economy, except um, by means of protest. I think that in the last uh, few years, probably the, uh, the single best example of a public event, of a social movement that recalled citizens to their public responsibilities was the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the aftermath of repeated police killings of unarmed Black men. And this emerged as a kind, as a kind of multi-generational, multi-racial, movement for social justice prompted by a horrific police killing, as you may remember, mm. but pointing beyond the particular issue of police violence and misconduct. This is an example of the way movements within civil society can gather people together, point toward efforts at political rejuvenation and reform, and in doing so, draw us out of our privatized pursuits, our pursuits as consumers um, or as 
being glued to our screens, uh, looking at social media, there are moments that recall us to a shared democratic citizenship. And this was one such moment in recent years. And you're certainly right that one of the main themes of the book, Democracy's Discontent, is that traditionally we have thought uh, and argued about economic arrangements, not only from the standpoint of GDP and even distributive justice, but also from the standpoint of whether this or that economic arrangement will enable people to be citizens, will enable people to work in a way that cultivates a sense of independence of mind and independence of judgment that democratic citizenship requires. And it goes back to Thomas Jefferson, who was against large-scale manufacturing in the United States, because he believed that the yeoman farmer was likely to uh, develop this kind of independence of mind. But the early trade union movement in the 19th century had a similar ambition. One of my favorite examples is the late 19th century organization in the US called the Knights of Labor. They were concerned with wages and hours and working conditions. But one of their demands was also reading rooms in factories hmm. so that workers during their breaks could read newspapers and magazines and equip themselves to discuss public affairs and to engage in politics. This is an example of what I, I mean by the formative project. And we've lost the sense in which economic arrangements make a difference to whether workers can also think of themselves as democratic citizens. Another thing that was very striking to me, uh, because I didn't go to school in America, so I don't know your history as well as you do, and I'm always impressed by the fact that many of your politicians were intellectuals as well as politicians. So you have ideas and political leadership at the same time. But I didn't realize to what extent that freedom at a time meant that, that you were against concentrated power, whether it was political or economic, that, that you saw big corporations and the big state as enemies of freedom, both of them. So the, I'm asking you to make a very long, long history, very short here. But what happened? How did you lose the focus on seeing big corporations as enemies of power instead of now seeing them as someone enabling the consumer? Well, uh, let me give you a very concrete example, Runa, of this yeah. shift in the idea of freedom underlying economic debates with regard to big corporations. Around the turn of the century in the United States, there emerged a strong antitrust and anti-monopoly movement. And it led to legislation to break up trusts and monopolies, partly knowing that uh, monopoly uh, corporations can raise prices for consumers, and that's a bad thing, but also the, the main motivation was that too much concentrated economic power defeats democratic accountability, democratic political power. And that was the worry, the primary worry that 
motivated the antitrust movement, the anti-monopoly movement in the United States around the turn of the century. And the idea of freedom underlying that idea was a civic conception of freedom. I'm free not only as a consumer, when I can buy and have access to the consumer goods I want that satisfy my individual preferences. That's a consumerist idea of freedom. But true freedom is civic freedom. It requires that I have a meaningful say in shaping the forces that govern our collective life. That's what I take to be civic freedom as against purely consumerist, individualist freedom. What happened with the antitrust movement over the course of the 20th century, especially after the Second World War, is that gradually the rationale for antitrust enforcement had to do less with reining in unaccountable economic power and more to do with the effect of big business on consumer prices. And eventually, the concern about reining in unaccountable power fell away. And this reflects, this is one example that I offer in the book of the shift, the subtle implicit shift from a civic understanding of freedom as connected to citizenship and self-rule and having a say to a consumerist conception of freedom that leaves the structure of the economy uh, un unexamined really, provided it satisfies the demand for prosperity, consumer goods, and economic efficiency. And so I'm suggesting we need to recover that more demanding civic understanding of freedom and bring it to bear in our economic arguments. And we do see today some revival of that conception, that older conception of antitrust, both in the US and in Europe, in the debates we see about holding to account some of these big tech companies so that they don't undermine democracy. In a way, that use of antitrust and the European Union, I think, has been more effective than we have so far in this. Um, it harkens back to the civic understanding of calling economic power to democratic account. Do you see it that way, or am I being overly optimistic, Rudy? No, no, I see it exactly the same way. And it's very interesting. A couple of years ago, I was visiting the Danish Commissioner for Competition, Margrethe Vestager, in Brussels. Uh, you know, she she's the one who took on uh, Google and Apple and all the big tech companies. So I was asking her, so actually, what is the ideological foundation for what you're doing? And she said, well, it's very easy. I just took the 100-year-old American antitrust uh, legislation and I practiced it. And she said, well, they left it because the Americans, they said, well, we don't mind how big the companies are as long as they're efficient and they deliver cheap products. But I said, they're not European companies. So it's a lot easier for us to remind the Americans of what the original intent of antitrust was because we don't have a lot at stake here. So I saw that this Danish commissioner, she was reviving your old wow. ideas and, and she did it explicitly. And now wow. and now when I'm I'm looking at what Lena Khan, you know, the wonderful yeah. young woman who's the chair of, of, um, of Federal Trade Commission, when, when I look at what she's doing, it seems to me that there is a team around Biden, Barry Lynn, Catherine Tai, Lena Khan, 
And they're actually reviving everything that you were asking for in the book 25 years ago. They're saying, well, this is not about consumers. This is about citizens. And they're explicitly saying, well, big corporations are a threat to our democracy. Speaking of resilience instead of efficiency. Do you see the shift in, in America as well? Yes. And I think you've you've described this shift beautifully, Runa. And I'm so impressed. And I hadn't I wasn't familiar with the ideological articulation of the Danish uh, minister who was on onto this, the official that you described. Uh, but I think you're right. I think that there are people who, uh, in the Biden administration, who have this, who are hearkening back a century to this older understanding of the purpose of antitrust, and by implication, to the, its ideological underpinning, which is to say the civic rather than the consumerist understanding. And the development of tech and social media illustrates the contrast very dramatically when we consider that in terms of consumer prices, Facebook is free. Facebook is free. You can't have a lower consumer price than free. <laughs> and yet the harm it inflicts, arguably, is to democracy. And so I think I think you're exactly right, Runa, that the United States, in a way, is learning from the Danes and the Europeans about recovering our own antitrust tradition and the civic understanding of democracy and of freedom that go with it. I see it in your trade policies as well. You know, the, the Biden administration, they made a presidential decree in July 2021 saying what, that trade agreements, they should benefit the workers and not the consumers. Right. And we just had the Davos meeting where we had the American trade representative, Catherine Tai, saying, well, now it's no longer a race to the bottom. It's a race to the top. So if you're mad that we're doing Inflation Reduction Act and you're saying this is not fair competition, you do the same yourself. So I think that the Biden team actually is on to this paradigmatic shift in your economy and your trading. I think you're right. And I think you have very astutely identified this as a broad trend. It's interesting, In I think in the American media coverage, of the Biden administration and its policies on trade and on antitrust. There is coverage of these policy shifts, but what you've done is you've provided and connecting it to my book very generously, you've, you've provided a kind of ideological framework uh, within which to understand this shift. And what's interesting, is the step that the Biden administration has not yet taken, but I, I would hope to be able to try to encourage them to do so, is to provide not just these policy shifts, which are important and welcome, but also a broad thematic statement of why they matter from the standpoint of democracy and civic life. Because unless they can do that and see it as part of a broad and inspiring conception of how we can renew democracy, 
through these economic uh, policy changes. Unless they can do that, these welcome policy developments will remain isolated technocratic changes, desirable though they be, but disconnected from a broader public discourse and project of persuasion. And it's that that interests me, trying to uh, provide and articulate a broad civic project of which these particular changes in antitrust and trade policy can be seen as, as expressions. Yeah, I totally agree that this is something you have to look for. You have to really look for it. And of course, you know, for me, Joe Biden is the best American president in my lifetime. Looking, wow. at, the, looking at the policies, I really admire what he's done to climate, what he's done to trade agreement, how he did not screw up uh, Ukraine. But we're so afraid because he's so old that this moment will disappear with him, that, that he carries something. Do you think it's what he's brought along that that's going to stick in the Democratic Party or, or will it disappear with him? It's a great question. And I think it's an open question, Runa. It's not only that he's old, it's that he he's he's an instinctive politician to his credit, and many of his instincts are sound and good and decent, uh, including uh, leading to the policies we've been discussing. But he's not a politician given to articulating <laughs> big ideas or a broad message, uh, uh, message or vision or sense of mission. And I think the key to preserving these initiatives is to connect them into a broad thematic new kind of uh, politics of citizenship, because only in that way will they capture the public imagination provide a basis for political campaigns and political arguments that can outlive the uh, presidency of Joe Biden. So that's what I think we, we have to find whether if Biden is not the best messenger for that broader <laughs> vision, we need to find other voices who can articulate and draw attention to uh, this broader civic uh, project. That will be the test of whether it will persist and have staying power, I think. But you've identified it beautifully. I mean, I wish we could borrow you to help us uh, <laughs> articulate this to the American public. It's You could say it's a promising but under-articulated shift in the governing public philosophy of the United States, and in this case, of the Democratic Party. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. Another big duality in your book is between what you call the procedural republic Uh, the liberal conception of what it means to be a citizen and the literal conception of what it means to contribute. And, and then you have the civic republicanism on, on the other side. And I've always been fascinated by what American liberalism can do when it's connected to social movements, especially in the 60s, where you had this, because to a certain extent, I think of the civil rights movement as an instance of the procedural republic, that you have people mobilizing around some basic principles that are liberal principles, but they add spirituality to them. They're organizing around churches. 
and they speak a language where you can sing at the same time. How do you see this connect? And you write about it in 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 in, in the book in the American history of democratic ideas with this civil rights spirituality and, and the procedural republic. Yes, um, and the um, well, as you know, the a, the procedural republic is what I take to be the inadequate way of framing and articulating the project of freedom. And what worries me, and worried me in the 1990s, was that if liberalism is only about trying to find fair procedures, but ignores the project of cultivating citizenship, uh, cultivating a sense of mutual obligation, including welcoming spiritual and moral argument into the public sphere, a liberalism that is purely procedural lends itself to the technocratic politics that I think creates a moral void in public life. Now, there's a reason for that, because liberalism traditionally worries that bringing moral and spiritual values to bear in the public sphere, especially in pluralist societies where we disagree about morality, will lead to conflict, disagreement, and maybe even coercion, the majority imposing their values on minorities who disagree. I understand that worry. But I also think that the procedural republic is deficient because, well, for two reasons. I don't think neutrality toward hmm. spiritual or moral questions is possible uh, in a democratic society. Nor do I think it's desirable, because it creates a void, a moral void, in the public square that invariably will be filled by narrow, harsh, intolerant moralisms, usually taking one of two forms, either fundamentalisms of various kinds, or kind of hypernationalism. And from the 90s to the present, we've seen both. We've seen the moral void created by the procedural republic, the supposed neutrality of a purely market or technocratic governed form of public life. It's unsatisfying. And so people reach for meaning and open the way either to fundamentalism or hypernationalism. So my argument is that we can't and shouldn't aspire to a purely procedural or technocratic or neutral way of conceiving uh, the public square. As for the civil rights movement, Runa, which you mentioned, I want to reclaim the civil rights movement from a purely liberal individualist interpretation. Mm -hmm. It's true the civil rights movement was about securing certain important individual rights for everyone to be served in public accommodations at lunch counters, for everyone to have their right to vote guaranteed. And we are still struggling to secure those rights. But the way of achieving those rights, what made the civil rights movement so inspiring as an example, is that it was a social movement that drew on sources of solidarity, and identity and belonging and community and spirituality that 
drew people together and animated them to seek not only individual rights, but also a politics of the common good. And that I, I see as the alternative to the procedural republic, which is why I want to acknowledge those sources in the civil rights movement of solidarity and community and, and moral argument. Martin Luther King was not morally neutral. He drew on spiritual and theological themes as well as broad democratic uh, themes and traditions. And I think that's important. And, and this is why I think the, a purely procedural republic is deficient in inspiring the sense of community, shared purpose, and civic engagement that a healthy democracy requires, Runa. One last question, which is very big and difficult as well, but I'm very curious, is that, that if you say you favor civic republicanism, that you favor a formation of citizens, a broad engagement that is not value neutral, that democracy must also engage with the passions in people's lives. Yeah. Then you have some people here in Denmark saying, well, then you need a set of common values, that there's a foundation of, of common values. Other people like myself, I would say, well, if you look at Danish history, and I don't expect you to know Danish history, over the last 150 years, we've been transformed from an agricultural society through an industrial society to a modern welfare state. And looking at how this transition took place, we gave up almost all cultural values along the way. My grandmother, she turned 100 years old, and she said, well, everything I was taught in school, morally, is now the other way around, about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be married. But she said, I look at my girls, I look at my grandchildren, I envy them the life that they got So in Denmark, we would say, well, this farmers movement, because it was a collective movement, it was taken over by the workers movement, by the welfare state, that when you had civic engagement along the way, then you didn't need the common values as a foundation or as a groundwork for, for, um, for this kind of republicanism that I think the welfare state is. But others would say, well, Runa, you're totally naive. You think history can and create societies. How, how do you see this dilemma? I think it depends what we mean by common values hmm. or shared values. When you were describing the world uh, that your grandmother experienced, looking back um, over the hundred years of her life, the common values about the role of women, for example, or about gay rights and gay marriage, what I think you're referring to are certain traditional yes. values, which take the, the common good or common values to be fixed by tradition. And that's that's not what I'm affirming. What, what I think is necessary is not that we freeze in place or adhere to some fixed common values that tradition has defined for us once and for all. Far from it. What I think is necessary is to cultivate in citizens from the time they're in school the civic capacity to reason and argue and contest, to persuade and to be persuaded about the common good, including those common values 
that may need to be challenged. And what I worry about with the procedural republic or with procedural liberalism is that it asks citizens to leave their moral and spiritual convictions outside when they enter the public square. Hmm. That's what I'm against. I'm for a more spacious, more welcoming conception of the public realm that invites people to come as they are, including some who will have very traditional values, others who will have secular, universalist, progressive values, and a range of others, and to engage, to find ways of convening citizens with very different views about the right way to live or about the meaning of virtue, to reason together and argue together with civility and respect about, about a common project, because any democracy is a kind of common project. And if it's to be held together by certain shared values, those values have to be contestable. What we have today, what passes for public discourse today, sadly, is either technocratic managerial talk, which inspires no one, <laughs> or at the opposite extreme, shouting matches, partisan ideological food fights, um, or kind of narrow, entrenched, opinionated assertions on social media. And what's missing in our arena for reasoning together about the common good. That's what I think we need. I think we need to cultivate those moments and places within civil society where that can happen, whether in trade unions or in congregations or in community halls or gathering places or in educational institutions. So I'm for common values, Runa. I don't think democracy can do without them. I don't think we can banish them or should try to banish them from the public sphere, but they must be contestable. The civic virtue we need now more than anything is the ability of democratic citizens to bring their moral convictions with them to the public sphere but to be humble enough and open enough and capable enough of listening to reason together, to argue, to debate, to persuade and be persuaded by their fellow citizens. That's what I think we need to invigorate democratic life, Rune. That is such a wonderful answer. Michael, it's been such a pleasure rereading your book, I should say, and I recommend it to everyone because there's so much inspiration and there's such a deepening of thinking about all the things that we're stuck in. It gives such a breathing space in, in your mind. So thank you for your book and thank you for taking your time. Such a privilege talking to you, Michael. My pleasure, Runa. Thank you so much. Det var så min samtale med Michael Sandell. Hvis man er interesseret i at læse mere af Michael Sandell eller følge hans systemkritik og opgør med det liberale system, som han selv har profiteret på, så kan man gå ind på information under butikken, og der kan man købe hans bog Meritokratiets tyranni, som vi har udgivet, og som er en virkelig forbløffende og modig kritik af hele det universitære system og hele det amerikanske klassesystem. I næste uge, der skal vi et helt andet sted hen. Der skal vi tale med den spanske filosof Marina Garces, 
som i 2017 udgav en lille pamflet, som hed For en ny radikal oplysning. Bogen er siden blevet oversat til tysk, fransk, engelsk og mange andre sprog. Og i dette efterår, der udkom den også på norsk. Og det er anledningen til, at vi taler med Garthes i næste uge om, hvordan man kan bruge oplysningsfilosofien til at genskabe de sociale bevægelser, til at gøre folk myndige og til at sætte alle de idéer, der styrer vores liv, på spil igen, så vi alle sammen kan blive klogere og bedre til at bestemme. Fordi ingen kan, siger Garthes, tænke alene. Det gælder om at få filosofien ud i gaderne. Og det er vi jo fuldstændig enige i her på Langsomme Samtaleredaktionen. Filosofien skal ud i gaderne, og gaderne skal ind i filosofien. Det er de bruger, vi hele tiden prøver at slå, og dem slår vi med et ordentligt brag i næste uge med vores spanske filosof. Denne her samtale var ligesom alle andre samtaler, klippet og produceret af vores gode ven, Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Jeg håber, I vil være med igen i næste uge. Tak for nu.